And what we found, which was really exciting, I think, about taking that kind of risk, if you will, was that it unearthed different facets of this future world we were building. Useful fiction is a smoothie. Hopefully it tastes good, but it's also packed with those nutrients. It's packed with the good stuff. You know, what we're trying to do is look at an issue and try to see what's missing from the conversation. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. This is episode two in our science fiction and storytelling series, where we talk with writers, creators, and authors who have a wealth of knowledge and experience in thinking about the future in unique ways. Today, we'll be talking with Peter W. Singer and August Cole. Pete and August are authors of such novels as Ghost Fleet and, most recently, Burnin, a novel of the real robotic revolution. They'll be talking to us today about their unique brand of science fiction called Fictional Intelligence, or Ficint, alternatively known as Useful Fiction, to communicate imagined ideas that are grounded in reality and why this tool is useful and effective for communicating to leaders, decision makers, and policymakers. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks so much for having us. So you two are the the premier writers of military and hard sci-fi, um, and your footnoting in your books gives kind of all this futuristic storytelling such a really grounded and hard-hitting feel. And if I can mention, uh, the Mad Scientist blog gets quite a few footnotes and burn-in. Uh, but how, how did you both come together to start writing books together, and what gave you the idea to write in the style that you do? Uh, we'll start with you, Pete. First, uh, we definitely owe great credit to the Mad Scientist blog for so many wonderful ideas, both on the fiction uh, and on the nonfiction side. And that hits what we're after. Uh, we think of what we call useful fiction or um, FICIN, short for fictional intelligence, as sitting in that sweet spot between uh, science fiction and uh, nonfiction research. So if you think of uh, science fiction or techno thrillers as like a milkshake, you know, it's pure entertainment. By contrast, a, a, a white paper, uh, an academic paper, that is your um, chalky tasting medicine. Useful fiction is a smoothie. Uh, hopefully it tastes good, but it's also packed with those nutrients. It's packed with the good stuff. And that's what we're after. Uh, it's the idea of um, entertaining stories, but they're carrying through real research. And um, quite honestly, we kind of stumbled across it. Uh, you know, like almost everything, it was a little bit of, you know, kind of chemistry in lots of different ways and opportunity and timing. Um, the short version of it is that uh, August and I first connected through uh, our, our nonfiction hats. Uh, he was a reporter. I was a source uh, back in topics like private militaries and Abu Ghraib. We then um, became friends. I, I was doing some um, consulting out for Hollywood. August was uh, exploring some fiction writing. 
and we had a nugget of an idea, uh, an idea for, um, you know, recreating Tom Clancy style uh, look at the future of war, um, the kind of books that we loved as kids. And um, we had this idea that became Ghost Fleet, you know, what would an actual World War Three look like? Uh, um, but we couldn't help ourselves. Uh, we were two wonks. And so, and we didn't know any better. And so we uh, drew from real world research, uh, you know, everything from studies and threat reports from cybersecurity to interviews with uh, F-18 pilots, you name it. And then we also couldn't help ourselves. Um, you know, we validated it. We put the footnotes in and it was strange. Uh, the publisher was kind of, why are you guys doing this? But um, it worked. Uh, it worked in that, um, some of the ways that were planned, um, Ghost Fleet obviously sold well, became a lot of people's you know fun summer read. But even more important is um, it had greater impact than any of the work that we had each done on the nonfiction side. You know, and I had books on military reading lists, and you know, Mad Scientist had invited me before the book came out, uh, so I guess that was a validator. Um, you know, August had been um, you know front page articles on Wall Street Journal, you name it, but. Ghost Fleet, this meld of narrative and nonfiction, that's the one that um, got us invited to brief. It's real world lessons uh, everywhere from the White House to the CIA, the, um, the Pentagon, uh, Australian Parliament, Nobel Institute. Even more important, it sparked everything from uh, three different governmental investigations, changes in military um, training programs, to um, our favorite example is uh, the Navy now has a $3.6 billion ship program called Ghost Fleet. They gave us $0 for it, but um, it just proved that what actual here again, research has shown that narrative, the oldest communication technology of all can be a very powerful tool. So why don't we use it um, more instead of just you know, boring old white papers and PowerPoints, uh, but, you know, ground it, ground it in that research so that it has that, that nutritious value. You know, I'll add to that. One of the really interesting aspects to the, the origin story, the partnership, you know, comes, you know, from my personal experience uh, in, in like failure, right? I, I had been a Wall Street Journal reporter uh, and thought I was going to stay in journalism my whole life and realized that I wanted to write about what was going to happen more than what had just happened. And so I set out to write a a manuscript about private military contractors, you know, set a few years in the future. Um, and, you know, I tried to sell it. It didn't work, but because Pete who'd become a friend and, and was a, as a, you know, foremost expert really in this, um, I was like, Hey, do you want to take a look at this thing? And, you know, that allowed, I think, you know, me to put that idea out there, you know, to say sort of to someone of like his you know, stature at the time, like I'm serious about fiction, right. It has a place. And then that really, I think sparked that kernel, of the creative relationship. And so for all these people out there right now, right, who are experimenting with short stories and novels, it's important to remember that like the project that doesn't go anywhere you think can actually lead to something really profound and, and spectacular. You know, the the other aspect to the to the journey that we've been on, and I think Pete, it's like a decade. Like we're really almost like on our 10 year anniversary here. Uh, and it is experimentation. Uh, and, you know, not being afraid to try things that people haven't normally done before. Again, footnotes and ghost sleep was one, you know, I guess stepping back, just using fiction at all. Right. Uh, you know, thankfully we're at a moment where that's, that's become quite, quite normalized and, and, you know, we hope to keep, you know, pushing the movement forward. Now, I really enjoyed the, the footnotes aspect of it, um, makes it 
easy to use the examples as well to say, look, this this is not just some ethereal, you know, idea that's just way out there. Um, they're, they're sourcing to show us the early indicators of these things. Happening. You talked about the importance of Ghost Fleet, and Luke brought up Burnin in his original question. Um, they're quite different in that Ghost Fleet is, you know, the story of an expansive global conflict, and Burnin reads more like a futuristic detective book with some crazy and kind of intriguing elements of society surrounding it. So how did you end up with such divergent books and what ideas and concepts were you trying to get across with the both of them? In our book projects, Pete and I are resolutely focused on what's next and, and most importantly, what are people missing? You know, Ghost Fleet uh, was born in you know, 2012, 2013. You know, Vernon was born essentially you know, two and a half, three years ago. And you know, the realization that this convergence of technologies in and around the AI field, robotics, but also the inability in our society in America to cope with these very powerful transformative forces that are uh, simultaneously economic, social, um, political, and cultural. And what we've just gone through with COVID was to some extent an acceleration of many of the trends that we saw playing out in the 2030s. So when somebody picks up Burn In, you know, they're following Agent Laura Keegan, uh, counterterrorism uh, agent for the FBI and her robot partner called TAMS on the hunt for an anti-technology terrorist who's essentially trying to tear the country apart turn it against itself. And a lot of those themes have resonated with people. And, and I have to say, you know, focusing on a domestic subject, again, was, was, was not something that I think a lot of people probably would have expected from us. But to us, it felt like the absolute right thing to do, the absolute right thing to shine uh, a light on. And, and I think uh, for, for, for reasons that you know, keep me up at night, you know, it's, it's proven to be true on, uh, for better or for worse. And so our hope is that in the same way that Ghostleet was able to catalyze thinking about cyber vulnerability in the supply chain, about new operating concepts and human machine teaming, you know, the very you know, profound questions of like, what is our private sector like Silicon Valley going to do in wartime? You know, Burnin can open up conversations about the relationship that we're going to have with our you know, robots and software the risks of extremism in the military and in American society and, and the, the ultimate risk that we're, we're running here in the next decade. So I'd add to that, that one of the things as we went through the process of the creation of it is that, you know, here again, we had this combination of the real world research, what do we think is important side, but also the fiction side. And that played out in a number of manners. One was uh, the choice of the topic. So we tried to find what we thought was that cross between the most important but least understood topic out there. And we felt that was all the suite of changes surrounding AI, automation, um, the ripple effects that it has on everything from the military to the economy to society writ large. And you know, to give you kind of, again, walk side, hard numbers on it, 91% of leaders agree with us. They say, yeah, AI is the most important tech out there. Only around 14% uh, of leaders uh, self-report that they understand AI, how it works, the ways that it's going to be used, the issues that are going to come out of, from it, like algorithmic bias. That is an incredible delta that we need to close. And, you know, the hard reality is um, most of that, you know, what, 75% are not going to go read a white paper on algorithmic bias or a study on how AI works. But by the time they hopefully finish burn-in, they'll get that. They'll not even realize that they get that, but they'll get that. Um, the other part of the sort of wonk side is um, it was an experiment for us. Uh, the useful fiction approach had um, worked out on um, Ghost Fleet. 
Uh, so, you know, like good scientists, you test it in a different setting. You say, okay, it worked in this setting of external traditional warfare. Let's move it and see if it works out in a different one, which was, you know, a more domestic side. But, you know, even though it's domestic side, all of the issues in it are useful to someone um, within the military. And that's where we've gotten a lot of really cool resonance into the, to the impact side of it. You know, uh, here again, we've been able to brief, you know, groups that range from, you um, JSOC to uh, the Royal Navy leadership to um, multiple cabinet members in the new administration, um, all the way up to uh, the president. Uh, he wasn't the president then, but on the fruits of this project. Uh, and, you know, again, coming out of a project that ultimately was this novel. Uh, so that that test, we think, worked out. It showed that the tool of useful fiction can work in a number of different areas. Um, but then the other part of it is, you, is your fiction hat, and, and August phrases really well, is just a story kind of builds within you, characters build within you, they start to um, look back at you, and you, you feel compelled to share their story with other people, and you know, as we were kicking around ideas, um, basically it just, you know, stuck with us and the character of uh, Laura Keegan became more and more defined. And, you know, she's looking back at us almost like in a mirror and the same thing for Tams. And once you hit that point as a writer, you're like, yeah, we got to write it. Uh, so that it's that combination of research and creation. I would add too, you know, the story structure is different, right? And this was part of the creative process. That's I think worth unpacking just briefly. You know, Ghost Sleep follows over half a dozen characters, right? To really show the true multidimensionality of what a global conflict would look like, you know, from space privateers to you know hackers to American insurgents. Burnin is a is a much more tightly focused story, both in geography, you know, it really is a story set in the DC area, you know, in and around the Beltway. And it follows, you know, essentially, you know, a singular character. And obviously her world is bigger than just herself. But that was a really interesting challenge as writers too, because it'll force us to go into greater depth about, you know, this development of this, of this, you know, person and her family and her relationships. And what we found, which was really exciting, I think, about taking that kind of risk, if you will, was that it unearthed different facets of this future world we were building. So talking about the roles that robotics and AI and, and learning software are going to play and like how we raise our kids, uh, you know, for example, became a really important part of the story, right? And that was because we were allowed, uh, we gave ourselves time to spend with, with Keegan uh, and her family. And whereas if we'd been, you know, bouncing around the world in a much more uh, globetrotting story, you know, we, we would not, we'd have had to trade that away. And I think that was something that really paid off. No, it, it, I think it really shined through in the book. Um, and those, those relationships became increasingly important. And um, because of the way you guys wrote that, I think it became very humanized too, not just a uh, techno, techno war book or just a straight techno thriller. Um, there, there was a lot of nuance there. It's kind of a good segue into, um, you know, you, you've both been instrumental in helping the U.S. military think about the future through sci-fi. And, and I, I say that without hyperbole in that um, we've seen so much more where um, we get military leadership who wants to think about it through this lens of storytelling. And, and as you noted, um, Ghost Fleet and Burnin uh, have really been featured across military commanders reading lists. Um, but now you've gone international and you wrote uh, Eye for a Storm as a primer for the Australian Defense Forces sci-fi writing contest. They're focused on professional military education and, and how technology merges with training and learning. Uh, can you tell our audience a little more about that project? So the 
idea of um, useful fiction versus um, sci-fi uh, distinguishes in a couple of ways. Um, and I need to be very clear. I, I love my sci-fi and, and I love my, my techno thrillers. Um, so it's not a ding on that, but, uh, there's a couple of key differences. One is, um, a series of rules that you have to follow. Uh, we call them the rules of the real, and that's everything from, um, embedding the research to locating in real world settings, uh, to real world people, to a real world timeline within a generation. And a, kind of a shorthand way of thinking about it is in sci-fi, um, you know, it's entertainment first and you can, you can um, sort of wave your hands at something. Um, uh, it might be, we, we came up with a new device that, that you know, makes everything stealthy or um, clickety-clack, we've hacked the system. In useful fiction, every technology has to be drawn from the real world. And oh, by the way, you've got to have a footnote for it. Or even on the cyber attack side, you've got to be able to show, hey, this is a type of um, attack that's either already happened in the wild or at least been tested, shown off at a hacker convention. That's what makes it that useful side. That what is what distinguishes it from the the sci-fi uh, aspect of it. Um, and so, what the other part is, um, and that's what led to this project with the Australians, is that it's done with a dual purpose. It's done not just for the entertainment book sale side, it's done um, to shape uh, the thoughts and actions of a target audience. And um, after the, the experience with Ghost Fleet, what happened is a, a number of other organizations approached us and said, you know, hey, um, you guys did this on major conflict or in burden, you did it on AI, those are topics you chose. Can, can you do it on what we're working on? Um, so to give an example, the uh, US Congress had a, the Cyber Solarium Commission, which is uh, this 182 page report on what US cyber strategy should be. Um, you know, it's a great report, chock full of good ideas. Most people are not going to read a 182 page report. So they asked us to transform um, a, a traditional executive summary into something else. And so we wrote a um, short story uh, that actually was the executive summary that baked in the key themes and carried it through. Um, in other cases, groups like the U.S. Air Force approached us and said, um, don't do it for us. Can you teach us how to do it? And so we organized a workshop for their futures team where we brought together uh, people like us to um, four-star generals, to um, uh forecasters for tech companies to the creators of um, Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, um, Crazy Rich Agents and Hunger Games. And they took the Air Force officers through everything from skills and forecasting to skills and world building, which again, you know, matter whether you're, you're working in um, budgeting to building presentations to definitely when you're thinking about future doctrine. And so we kept having these kind of one-offs and we said, you know what? let's do it more programmatically. And so we created a project called dot, 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 useful fiction. And in this case that you mentioned, uh, the Australian military approached us. They have a really wonderful, well-written 17 page white paper on um, professional military education reform needed over the next 15 years, 
however, you know, it's obviously a little bit dry. <laughs> um, and also they had key audiences and the key audiences are both the wider membership of the military, but also senior leadership. And so we transformed that white paper into a short story called I for a Storm that pings back and forth from the experiences of a, of a young officer while they're in the war college. Uh, and so we're seeing through them, you know, everything from, okay, how is distance learning going to play out? What are some of the ways that um, virtual reality might be brought into the lecture hall? But then they're going out on a mission. Uh, it's an embassy evacuation. And so through that, we also see things like uh, Chinese drone tactics, uh, the ways that augmented reality might be used, um, what's next in supercomputing, but most importantly, how what they learn in the classroom makes all the difference. And so you get this short story that packages the important things from the study, but baked into it are exactly 37 key themes and research insights. And um, it, it worked. Uh, and I just mean it worked as a story. Um, but, you know, by the numbers, they had uh, literally, uh, you know, thousands of readers of it which is obviously way more than you usually get for a PME reform paper, but the overall commander of the Australian army not only read it, but attended the launch ceremony of it. And that showed that, you know, key target audience um, reach by this reframing into useful fiction. And so we've been doing more and more of these projects for groups that range from NATO to um, uh, the British government. Same thing on the teaching side. We've done them um, with Syracuse University, with NATO. It's been really exciting. And again, it, it's topic agnostic. You can do it uh, on pretty much um, any key topic. Look, if you can do it on PME reform, I think that's evidence enough. Uh, so you two have popularized the term ficant. Can you tell us what ficant is and why it's so important? This, this term ficant has, you know, been effectively a, a shorthand that uh, I started using as a way to try to get people to think very seriously about the value of uh, fiction narrative, especially, you know, science fiction and, and similar, you know, types of writing or film or even video games, you know, like I would, you know, be telling my family, like, no, I'm, I'm playing this for work uh, because there is value, right, in, you know, a lot of the different creations that, you know, the, the you know, entertainment companies and directors and, and producers are, 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 are creating when it comes to really thinking through, like, the visualization of what the future of conflict looks like. Because, you know, a lot of analysis, you know, I think underpins uh, a really good understanding of what's ahead, but you don't really, like, see it or know it in the same way. And maybe that's just the way my, you know, my brain works. I, I tend to write very visually and and kind of think in that way. And so Ficken allowed, you know, a way to kind of do something that spoke to, I think, the, you know, officialdom, right? You know, in DC, like you're only as good as your acronym or your, well, your budget, I guess is really what it is, but your acronyms, you know, really helps. And uh, and it's been funny to, to see it uh, take off. It's, it's good because it's sort of a shorthand, but it is, as Pete said, differentiated from, I think, something more uh, kind of structured and, and, and like useful fiction. And, you know, honestly, I think that's another aspect, like the partnership that Pete and I have, right? Like we approach these things in, in ways that are extremely complementary uh, and we iterate. And I think that is something that other people can take away in trying to figure out how to apply these kinds of techniques and processes in, in their own organizations and in, and in their own work. And so, you know, my hope and, and just seeing the internationalization of, of, the, of the phrase and the term, and, and not only that, but more importantly, this, this kind of a, uh, appetite for, uh, you know, useful fiction is really heartening, right? Because the scope of threats, you know, is getting only more complex. The pace of technology is faster than, than even the most agile commercial firms can keep up with. Therefore, it's even more challenging for government. 
And yet, you know, we have to be able to understand what's ahead. And even if we don't necessarily predict the future, right? Fickent useful fiction is not about a disc, uh, discrete prediction, but it's really about understanding what possible futures are. And in many cases, in a cautionary sense, uh, trying to say, hey, let's not go down that path. If I could add, there's one other um, related aspect to the int side of it is that, you know, when you think uh, about SIGINT, HUMINT, um, some of its best uh, successes come not when it predicts the future, but when it prevents the future. That's the real value of intelligence. And um, same thing we've found, you know, there are certain things in our projects that are not going to come true because someone read about it in our projects. Uh, you know, there's examples of like software chain uh, vulnerability issues and the like. And that, that's another you know, way of thinking about the, the int INT as compared to the int ENT. I think that's a great point, Pete, and something we try to focus on um, with Army Futures Command and, and really across Army is this idea that uh, the future is not some uh, predetermined thing that, you know, we describe the future operational environment. And so that's exactly what it's going to be like, or these threats and challenges will remain exactly that, but it gives us an idea of the alternative futures uh, and how we can start to shape that and, and change our paradigm for uh, operations and concepts and everything else. Um, I, wanted, I wanted to bring up, Pete, you know, you've noted many times on Twitter, um, those ghost fleet or burn-in moments that happen in real life. <clears throat> and recently, the jamming up of this cargo ship in the Suez Canal really made me think quite a bit about uh, that initial scene in Ghost Fleet, um, where they use use the Panama Canal uh, to essentially stop stop all that you know a lot of that global transit, and so what what are some of the prominent examples uh, that stick out in your minds, uh, and, and any that have really surprised you? Oh gosh, we we see one of these moments almost every day, and it's a little bit overwhelming. And you know sometimes they're um, technology moments, sometimes they're, you know, uh, social or political trends. Um, you know, gosh, it, 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 I think that the two most resonant is maybe, you know, what's on my mind right now is um, not the, you know, the large geopolitical China rolling out something that we had projected, but um, from Burnin, it was uh, the moments in it that we thought were just incredibly dystopian that have already, you know, become real. Uh, and so, you know, Burnin had a scene in it of um, a riot uh, playing out on the National Mall. Uh, it had a scene of um, a high militarized fence thrown up around the White House. Um, it, it, actually the exact geographic perimeter of it that was in the book was where it was in reality. Or, you know, just um, yesterday, there was uh, a scene of um, a New York City police mixed human and uh, robot uh, coming out of low income housing and the crowd gathered both taking photos, but also looking at the police in a very different way that was spot on from a scene in the book. So um, it kind of, I think, you know, it's a, maybe a little bit of the disturbing side. And that's why uh, we've started to get reactions to our um, ghost fleet and burn-in uh, moments. We post them online as people replying like, hey, uh, someone literally just a couple of days ago was like uh, making a, a, a joke of the, the Mattis quote from Iraq where they were saying, you know, I'm begging you with tears in my eyes, please just write a romantic comedy next. You know, <laughs> like, we don't like your stuff coming true. And one of the great ways that, 
you know, Twitter and, and social media in general allows people to kind of reimmerse themselves in these futures, right? With with something like a go sleep moment of the day or burn in moment of the day, and and it's as much a reminder of of how close the future is, and that it often moves faster and sometimes slower than than we anticipate. And and some you know this this sort of scanning maybe it's how I use Twitter you know predominantly anyway, but I'm kind of always looking for signs you know in the uh, in ripples in the water of like what's ahead, and and I think that's an important kind of openness you have to have to, you know, the, the fact that the future may already be here, you know, there's the William Gibson quote, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And, and my hope in a sense is, is, is that these, you know, burn in or, or go sleep moments can keep reminding people of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I, I thought it was quite interesting the other day, um, there was protests uh, involving the, the essentially the victims of burn pits um, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, veterans who are dealing with serious, um, you know, re, re, uh, excuse me, respiratory issues. Um, some, some I know personally who have dealt with that. Uh, and it was very reminiscent of the veteran groups uh, that you guys kind of described in burn in. So to see that, to see that come to fruition, um, I think you're hitting a lot of the important issues within those books. So, so we brought you guys in as part of this series that we're running for the podcast where we talk to writers and storytellers. And so the next question I have for you is, is kind of one of my favorite questions to ask anybody uh, who, who writes for a living or who creates for a living because it's so, it's so fundamental. So I want to hear your opinions on this, uh, you know, both of you. But August, let's start with you. Why is storytelling so important? Storytelling is, you know, arguably like the oldest technology of all. And I think it is a fundamentally effective way to connect with people in a manner that inspires them uh, to do something about not just what they're, you know, dealing with today, but but what's ahead. Uh, you know, someone who grew up, uh, you know, very interested in foreign policy and conflict as someone who saw journalism as the best way to get at that and to do something in a kind of public-minded way. You know, I came to see that, you know, this this nonfiction, even though journalism can be quite narrative, you know, it's, it's less and less so, uh, and that there had to be other ways to do it. And, and, and the, the, the ability to connect with the right people is important, right? You know, uh, an elite newspaper like, you know, the Journal or the Times or the Post can do that. But, you know, the broadening of connection is so important, not just for, you know, social media technologies, but even old school, you know, stuff like books. And, you know, being able to draw people into a narrative that creates either a you know, unified conversation that can lead to, you know, of course, different interpretations of it, but like some kind of action, you know, uh, is, I think, a really good goal to have. And of course, not every writer, you know, has that, but that's certainly what motivates me personally. And I, and I think, you know, I could speak to Pete in that regard, too. It's like, you know, we're trying to, to, to do something akin to the DARPA mission of, you know, pre- preventing strategic surprise, right? And, and narrative, you know, is very effective at doing that, more so today when, disparate ideas coming from places where ordinary, you know, process and thought don't often turn to, right? We need more diversity. We need more inclusion for the kinds of like really innovative solutions, especially in national security. And and narrative is, I think, one of the best ways to do that. So I'm going to begin with the, um, you know, unprofessional answer, and then I'm going to give that wonk answer. The unprofessional answer is because it's fun. It's fun to create it. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I still do my nonfiction white papers, articles, um, books. I still read and value them. Uh, but, you know, let's all be honest. It's a lot more fun to read something entertaining. And it's, you know, I think, you know, August is going to agree here. It's more fun to create it. Uh, it just scratches a very different itch. Okay, so that's the unprofessional answer. The professional answer is you can think of the value of narrative along three tracks. Um, it's understanding, 
action and connection. So on the understanding, you know, August talked about that um, narrative packages information within the oldest, but um, arguably most effective technology of all. Um, our human brains are literally wired for narrative. You know, we were using narrative to share information when we were gathered around fires in a cave. PowerPoint, it's exactly 30 years old. So our brains are designed to take in um, now, and that's been found in research and everything from, you know, cognitive psychology to um, international relations studies of um, uh, the most senior leaders in crisis. They continually turn to narrative. Um, it also uh, narrative, um, it's particularly valuable for bringing in new concepts or complex concepts because it fires more parts of your brain. Um, you know, the, basically when you're reading a traditional form, two parts of your brain light up um, when it's packaged through narrative, four parts of your brain light up. So you're more likely to um, understand it and it's more likely to stick with you. The second is that idea of emotion and action. Narrative, if it's done well, sparks emotion. And as everyone from you know politician to used car salesman know, it's emotion that drives the sale. It's emotion that creates action, not just the facts of the matter, not just what you put in the, the bullet points there. It's the emotional side. So synthetic environments trigger that emotion. We as humans cannot help ourselves, but to put ourselves within those synthetic environments in some way, shape or form. And then we want to act either to live them out or we want to act to prevent them from happening. And then the final is um, connection. Here again, we humans can't help ourselves. We connect over story. Um, whether you are a four-star general or a teenager, when you um, meet someone new, when you see uh, someone that you've known for a long time, very soon in the conversation, you will turn to um, something that you uh, read, that you enjoyed, something that you saw, a book that you read on vacation, a movie that you saw, uh, whatever. We connect over a story because when we enjoy a story, we want to share it with others. We want them to join in the experience as well. And so um, here again, you know, even four-star generals become not just your audience, they become part of your marketing. Uh, they carry it forward. It's, it's like a virality. And, um, you know, a different way of thinking about it that we've joked about is, you know, no one ever um, said, man, I just came back from vacation and I read the best PowerPoint. You would love it. But they will do that about a story. Um, and that example that we've given, you know, is one that we can confirm, you know, four-star admirals and, and, and members of cabinet, et cetera, have, have done, as well as just, you know, 20-year-old uh, West Point cadets. So that's the power of narrative. And what useful fiction is, is saying, okay, this is a tool. I'm going to use this tool. I'm going to deploy it for the topics that I care about. No, I think, I think that's incredibly important. And kind of in that same vein, you know, you, you both talked about a little bit about it before, but I'd like to expand on it uh, if you don't mind. And what does your creative process look like when, when the two of you 
work together um, on on these ventures, um, it it obviously involves a lot of coordination. And so, how do you how do you bring those ideas about? I was going to offer a flip answer, like you just sit down and write. Um, uh, you know that, but that is actually one of I think the really important premises that that anybody who's you know embarking on one of these type projects has to has to really embrace, which is you know you, you have to put words down, uh, and that you can study things to death. Uh, and that, you know, both Pete and I have, uh, thankfully, a strong foundation in writing. So that that part actually sometimes is is not the impediment. And, and in many cases, you know, what we're trying to do is look at an issue and try to see what's missing from the conversation, for example. Uh, you know, go sleep is like this. What's the rise of China in a third world war really going to look like? You know, burn it. What are the kind of existential risks around AI and technology? Uh, so in that process, there's like, you know, if you think about a, a book, which is different than a, than a short story, there's enough similarities, though, that I think I could draw out, which would be, you know, research phase, right? Not unlike a nonfiction. So you're kind of gathering string, you know, flip stories, trying to immerse yourself in the subject. There's also a lot of conversational research, too, right? Like, who you're, you know, you're talking to people, like, to get the things that people are missing in, in the conventional wisdom. And then, you know, I think we start to kind of shoot emails back and forth like everybody does. You know, we, we live in different cities and different parts of the country. And so you know, we've always operated in kind of this, you know, COVID model to some extent, um, and and begin to flesh out, you know, what a story might look like. And then it becomes a matter of almost starting up a 3D printer and like layering. I'm going to talk with my hands, which the listeners can't see, but like layering, you know, words upon words upon words. So that when you read uh, Ghost Leader Burn-In, when you read one of our, our useful fiction projects, you can't tell who wrote what sentence, what chapter. You know, a lot of writers, when they collaborate, hey, you do this chapter, I'll do that chapter. Uh, you know, we each have scenes or aspects we want to, you know, write. Like, hey, let me write a list insurgency scene in, you know, Hawaii for Ghostly or something like that. Or I want to write the naval battle. Um, but it gets washed over so many times that you are in a position where, you know, as a reader, you get a seamless experience, and that's that's crucial. And then fundamentally, when you're done, I think you you get to a really important phase, which is to kind of step back and look at like, did we kind of reach the objective we we're going for? Right? You know, is there an ask of our reader that's articulated and clear? Uh, and then, you know, we'll hopefully have a chance to show it to some experts who can kind of say, you know, this doesn't pass the giggle test here, or, or you got that really right. I'm glad you brought that up in the story. Um, you know, that's, I think, a pretty good kind of like hundred you know, thousand foot sort of view of, uh, of, of what it looks like. But un- fundamentally, you know, writing is about sitting down and doing it. The great thing about going second is while August was talking, I was writing it down, the, the process. And August, it actually breaks down into 10 stages. Um, and so I'm going to hit them real rapidly. Uh, one is um, your prior experiences. Uh, and, and I actually, I'm going to use, and it, we, we just completed a project. I, mean, I can't go into the details of it, but um, uh, it's a project that brings together questions of everything from new technology to new battle challenges to, um, let's just say it takes place somewhere really, really, really cold. Uh, and, um, so essentially first stage is your life experiences. Um, you're drawing in all sorts of different, um, things that you've experienced that are always out there in the background. Uh, both of us have, um, spent time in this cold region, uh, doing projects with, uh, various military and corporate organizations. Um, Second, we've got, um, you're constantly doing research. You constantly, and we, we kind of have what we call a, a scan sheet where when we see something interesting that comes across, um, we mark it down, you know, a cool new technology or a, a vulnerability or attack. And it's like a, it's like a, you know, a resource that's sitting there for us to utilize. Um, third, uh, select the topic. Uh, and in this case, the topic was selected for us. 
Um, it was an organization that, that you know, wanted to explore topic X. Um, next, you have the research that goes into it. And the research is you know, pulling everything from data to interviews or the like. Um, next is plots. Uh, we kick plot ideas around and, you know, we, we've got multiple ones and this is just a sort of fun, free-flowing conversation. And often the, the plot idea that you went in thinking was the best one turns out, oh no, no, that other one was better. And you get that kind of 3D printing re refine. Um, then once you've selected the plot, we create an outline. And um, here again, you have like a, a back and forth on that outline, the kind of the beats of the story. And then you're also plugging the research into that outline. Um, then you have the, the draft as you know, August put it, um, and you know, you're writing it down. Then you have the shaping of the draft, the back, the forth, the back, the forth. Um, then, you know, as I said, we have the research at the start and that includes interviews. We then have the share stage where we, it's the, as August put it, it's, it's kind of that both combination of like, um, you're the real world people that might be in the story, you want them to read it so that you get it right. So again, I'm not revealing too much by saying it has a central character who's a US Marine. So who's a US Marine Lieutenant Colonel. So we shared it with US Marine Lieutenant Colonels, you know, to make sure that we get everything right all the way down to that one little lingo that if you get it wrong, you know, it can be a story set 20 years from now, but if you get, you know, one little acronym wrong or lingo, they're going to say, oh, it's terrible. So you're sharing it with that. You might be also sharing it with your target audience. We had a different experience where the target audience was, you know, um, not just general public, but, um, uh, military officers in their 20s. So get a couple of military officers in their 20s to read it and give you feedback. And then based on that, another back forth, back forth revision. So it's like this um, 10 stage process. Uh, and um, that then allows you to, to get the final product um, that hopefully delivers. I find those answers fascinating. I love seeing kind of the inside look at how how you guys, uh, you know, create what you create. And, and, and August, you know, you mentioned that that was kind of a flip answer, you know, how do you write what well, you sit down and write. Um, but in putting together this, this series of sci-fi uh, episodes for the podcast, you know, I started doing a lot of research into other writers and I was looking at Neil Stevenson, you know, author of Snow Crash. And one of the things that he said, he kind of had this whole diatribe of why he doesn't do more interviews and why he doesn't do uh, more appearances. And it was essentially because in order to be a writer, you have to sit down and write. And it's not just, you know, I can write for two hours and then do an interview and then write for another two hours. And that's four hours of writing. There's a lot of value in four uninterrupted hours of writing as opposed to two segments of, of, of hours of writing. So I, even though it was kind of a flip answer, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I, I think that's a really excellent point. And, you know, personally, it's something I, I, I wrestle with as someone who's, you know, trying to use writing professionally. Uh, and, you know, we all want to be able to focus on the work itself, but also trying to figure out ways to connect with people and get those ideas out there. And I think there's a really interesting tension too, you know, in this approach of wanting to make your work relevant, right, and, and useful, uh, is that, you know, I don't think you can ignore, you know, the aspect that goes with, you know, introducing it to audiences that might not have been exposed to it, uh, finding ways to establish its credibility in communities that might not ordinarily, you know, be a novel to learn something about, say, cybersecurity. And, and, and I think at the same time, that, that just is, I think, one of the challenges that, as Stevenson said, you know, is part of being a, a professional. Uh, you know, every, every, you know, a doctor has to do charts, right? There's just aspects to your job, uh, you know, that, that you have to kind of juggle. And it's really important to be mindful of that so you can be strategic. And, and I think for your listeners, you know, tuning into when 
you like to write and when you write best. You know, one of the earliest things, and I'm like the least quantitative guy around, but I made a, an Excel spreadsheet when I was starting out, tracking when I felt I was most productive, like how much I actually wrote, time of day, uh, how much revision I had to do. And I did that for a couple of months and I came you know, to realize pretty quickly that I really felt like I was most effective writing at like five in the morning till like seven you know, 5.30 to seven or whatever, um, you know, and that, that was data, right? Like that just was something that I could fundamentally point to. And that doesn't mean every project gets written, you know, before sun comes up, but I know that if I'm trying to figure out a strategy for something I'm working on, that that's often what I'll revert to. And, and I think you can invest that time and, and care in creating that workflow, you know, and understanding that that really pays off, especially when you're time crunched, like you know, all of us are. That's why we're such a complimentary team. Um, I could never, ever write at 5 a.m. in the morning. Uh, my, my algorithmic uh, approach is uh, late afternoon, um, evening. But, um, you know, Matt, you, you put your finger on, I think, one of the biggest challenges um, for those of us who are trying to, you know, play in different worlds in a way, you know, that Stevenson isn't, um, you know, going back to this notion of kind of, you know, useful fiction is that you you feel um, dueling responsibilities and and there's there's a real tension there and I, I wish I had an answer to it but you know you have a tension on one hand um, uh, to create you know so that writing time aspect but you also have um, let's be honest uh, there's the marketing side you need to you know publishers aren't going to publish it if no one's buying it so you know you're doing the the press interviews and 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 the like. But then on top of that, you have the, what brings us here together, you know, the policy side, the real world value side of it. So, you know, like to, I mean, this very week that we're talking, um, I've done sessions with um, SOCOM, uh, Department of Energy, I, I, right after we get off this podcast, doing something with Secret Service. Um, thing, I mean, I could go, there's multiple different, a uh, whole DOD, different elements of it that part is not on your normal sci-fi writers. Oh, I, I think I ought to go or a different, I'm, I'm going to go give a, a, a remote speech to West Point cadet. So it's not that it's going, you know, they're not making the policy decision right now, but hopefully they'll be shaped better informed, uh, you know, 20 years from now. So you, you're always striking that balance. And you know, honestly, you know, I think, and August would feel this too, that, you feel incredibly stretched thin. Um, I, that's the downside of trying to play in multiple different worlds. And oh, by the way, we're both dads. And so every one of those elements is dueling with another responsibility. Um, and so it's, it's um, you know, that's, that is the tension at play um, with the modern writer slash someone working in policy. And I think those tensions that I just talked about is probably something that, people who aren't writers feel with, and, you know, there are other aspects of their, you know, I think everybody's wrestling with this sort of constantly feeling um, pulled in multiple directions, you know, when you want to do the right thing. You know, what's funny too, is like, I can't imagine wanting to do it any other way. Right. You know, that's, that's the really interesting aspect. Like it would be, you know, perfectly acceptable to say, I'm not going to engage in that policy. I'm just going to focus on my craft. Uh, but that's just not, that's just not who we are. You, you had mentioned earlier in one of your answers that one of the things that, that, you like your your work to do is is kind of show the DOD or the military or whoever your audience is, you know, what they're missing. So so what are we missing? What are the Army and the DOD not thinking about? It's funny, I 
wish we could have a visual right now because um, I've been doing these uh, leader training seminars, you know, the um, congratulations, you're a three-star general. Now you have to go to two weeks of executive education. Um, and, you know, and there's a, a central part of that. And it's the, the real world lessons of these projects is, you know, it's a, it's a discussion of both what are the new technologies out there that are important, but more so what are the questions that they uh, will present to us and, um, you know, we don't have all the answers to them, but what can we tell right now about the approaches that we're taking to answering these questions that may be um, which one of them are correct and which one of them are wrong. And um, one in particular that's a, a visual that I'll show is that I think really hits uh, a challenge for um, the Defense Department and you can break it down by the services, etc. is um, it's a picture of the USS Arizona in 1939. And so it shows, and it's from the, the back of the battleship uh, and you see it from the perspective of the float planes on the back of it. And I use that to talk about how, you know, a couple years back when it came to new technologies like um, unmanned systems, um, artificial intelligence, the, the approach, the debate, the, the discussion within the military had kind of echoes of um, the early 1920s battleship captains, you know, airplanes, no, 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 they'll never do anything against battleships. And that was kind of a similar discourse around like unmanned systems and the like, now we're past that. Now everybody's like, no, 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 I'm on board. I get it. It's the newest, greatest thing. And it's the parallel to the battleship captains of the 1930s who would, you know, wag their fingers and say, you know, don't tell me that I'm not on board with the airplane revolution. I get it. I'm giving up valuable budget for airplanes. I'm even giving up valuable deck space for airplanes. And these airplanes, they are going to make my battleship more lethal than it's ever been before. The airplane is going to be able to um, scout ahead and find the enemy battle fleet. The airplane is going to be able to make my cannon more accurate than there ever been before. So I am truly ready for the revolution of airplanes. And what they were doing is that they were changing just enough not to change. And that mentality and that layering on top of what we're already doing um, if you're looking at everything from, you know, uh, army aviation and its plan to undersea warfare, that that hits so much of it. And then, you know, to, to be fair, I'll then show an image of the sort of a similar thing. And it's a um, U.S. Army uh, training exercise from 1931 that has a machine gun mounted on the back of a horse drawn wagon. And it's sort of the same phenomena of, you know, no, 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 we get it now. We get that machine guns matter, but we're putting machine guns on the back of our wagons, right? And so I, you know, say to people like, what's that parallel today? What's that system? What's that approach? What's that organizational structure that you're just layering change on top of to avoid actually changing? I might offer up something almost more existential. Uh, for you know, senior leaders in the Army and DOD, which is, you know, in Berlin, we talk about these very disruptive forces, particularly in the U.S. economy, you know, from AI and robotics. And any senior leader who doesn't think those are going to be equally as disruptive for our uniformed services and, to large extent, the civilian, uh, you know, parts of government is, you know, missing a very important opportunity to be prepared for a future that is going to come faster than they think. And we all know that the kinds of large you know, social movements that are precipitated and accelerated by technological change are often quite tumultuous. Again, you know, that's not unlike what we're starting to see right now. And so I think 
the more time that people can spend, even if it's not a lot, considering, you know, how will the back end, for example, the, the, the tail to the tooth, you know, ratio be shifted and changed by AI uh, and, and robotics, you know, and the ways that labor force economies for the armed forces are going to be fundamentally shifting at the same time as that's happening in the civilian world. These are profound questions for what it means to, in a Western democracy, not just the US, but pay for standing armies. You know, what will our forces look like in the 2030s? You know, what if economics more than threat, right, drive it? Uh, you know, that's a very real possibility and, and something I've been able to explore a little bit with some fictional stuff, but I think it deserves a lot more attention uh, you know, from from senior leaders. August just plot spoiled a little bit the um, secret of the subtitle of Burnin. Uh, you know, so it's a novel of the real robotic revolution. And it's the idea that um, despite all the narrative or in sci-fi about robot uprising and, and the military side to um, lethal autonomous weapon systems uh, that all of that discussion is focused in the wrong area, that it's really about the sort of industrial revolution uh, play. And, uh, you know, and on the military side, think of all the different ways that um, mechanization transformed uh, the military and everything from tactics and doctrine to literally the identity of um, who officers were. That was really insightful. And, and I think we have to think about how uh, we want to change the paradigms of thinking of these things and, and how much we have to open the aperture uh, as it pertains to national security, not just being an armed conflict kind of thing, uh, but what, what does it mean in the future? And I think we're seeing that now between climate crises, um, as you said, economic concerns and, and this, this real robotic revolution, uh, not the Terminator fantasy that, that a lot of people are, are thinking about. Uh, we're going to transition to our rapid fire questions, um, but these are questions we ask all of our guests just to get a better sense of them. Uh, some of them might be a little hard for you guys because your profiles are so public already. But uh, uh, the first question we wanted to ask is uh, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Uh, I'll give a quick one. I'd say, you know, gene engineering. Uh, the glowing, uh, the glow of my kid's iPad. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and what it does to keep him up that then keeps me up. But I, I actually, um, like-minded the, the bio side, I just think is so transformative and, um, you know, scary. And, and I think it also hits kind of, um, natural human, uh, the creep factor is very high. I, th I think that's the first literal answer we've had to that question, literally keeping someone up at night. <laughs> I uh, also, I think we got a spoiler about what the next novel from Pete and August will be. Uh, <laughs> um, what um, is something, and, and this is one of the hard ones, what is something about you that you're willing to share with our audience that most people might not know? Pete? How obsessed I am with professional basketball uh, and uh, the hours upon hours and hours that I waste uh, in um, thinking through, you know, following the, the latest scores and stands, um, even though I'm not actually a deep fan of um, any team in it. You know, I'll say uh, my best ideas come from when I'm riding my bike or surfing. And so I'm always <laughs> scheming to try to find ways to do more of both. And I think for anybody who really wants to kind of be in a position to introduce more creativity into their life, finding times when you can like not do anything and be totally unplugged. Like you can't be on your phone 
uh, double screening when you're mountain biking, you know, or surfing, right? So finding opportunities like that that are like visceral and physical um, are really helpful to coming up with good ideas. I love that. Um, and this one is is our our more impossible question, uh, which is, what is your favorite movie? So the one movie I'm trying to get my teenage daughter to watch is uh, James Cameron, or is, yeah, James Cameron's Aliens. You know, from like '86, I think. Uh, it's not working. I uh, tried Red Dawn too. Uh, those are two formative ones for me when when I was young. But but I would uh, suggest for right now, like in you know 2021, uh, people check out Zero 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 on Amazon. It's a, a series about the drug trade uh, that's incredibly well written and it's painful to watch. It's pretty grim. Uh, but if you want to really think through, you know, some future friends scenarios, uh, it's incredibly inspiring. I know it's a cliche, but I have to say the real the original star wars um just because of you know everything it started not just for me but for everyone else um and 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 yes i know it's probably you know and going back and there's certain things that it's not you know, elements of it that are not that great but come on it's it's the greatest so uh that's that's what i have to go yeah with. i i think i have the same answer and i went through the same kind of thought process of it so it is so cliche to say that and it's kind of strange now to say that it's so popular it's 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 weird to say that's your favorite movie considering how popular it was when it came out let's be honest it's not the best star wars movie, correct but it is the greatest movie. I, I, I agree 100%. I want to actually ask a real quick follow-up question because, August, you talked about it, and Pete, I know you've been involved in it. What Do you guys have a favorite video game? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know what one, a video game I really liked was uh, The Division, which was set in a kind of a post-pandemic collapse New York, which feels a little on brand right now. But what was fascinating about that game, and I always wanted to do like an urban warfare think tank event inside it because they... they totally rendered New York or Manhattan really like to ultimate fidelity. I was talking to my brother who, who was living in New York at the time. And he was like, Oh, I walk by that every day to go to my office. Um, you know, so that from like a game design and the story, you know, st structure was, was interesting too, but I thought it was fascinating and it still stands out as being, I think one of the more, more kind of complex, but like really smoothly, you know, built out, built out games. I mean, I'm, I'm terrible at video games to be clear. Right. But, um, but I, I appreciate them, at least nonetheless. That, that was under the Tom Clancy umbrella, I believe, right? It was, yeah. I mean, the X-Wing Squadrons game is pretty cool, too. Um, I don't have the virtual reality or augmented or whatever part of it, but uh, I, I like that one. Pete, do you have one? So uh, I am going to uh, decline to answer for ethical reasons. Um, uh, I actually have done consulting for a variety of different video games and um, that that's, you know, one of our side hustles, uh, you know, like most people in the defense world go consult for a defense contractor. Uh, I, you know, went out to Hollywood and video games. And so thinking in this case, if I say, well, I like X, well, what if I've received money from X? So um, I'm going to decline to answer uh, so that I don't bias anything. Maybe I'll say, you know, the, the best video game, there was a, a, a Roblox one that my kid made that was pretty awesome. I was going to say, so your answer is like Pac-Man or Asteroids, maybe. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, we, we want to thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Uh, we, we would be able to talk to you guys for hours, uh, but can't keep you that long. Um, we really appreciate everything you've been to, to the Mad Scientist program. Um, where, where can they follow you at? So you can check out our um, work together at uh, 
useful-fiction.com and uh, the new book uh, Burnin at burninbook.com. And of course, you know, it's available on uh, Amazon. And you can follow uh, me uh, at pwsinger.com and on Twitter uh, at Peter W. Singer. Uh, and I apologize in advance for um, all the bad jokes and political takes that you have to sift through to get to the war and technology. There's stuff. usually a blanket apology that's understood for all of Twitter. So that's fine. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at August underscore Cole. And you can read more about the work that I've been up to at augustcole.com. Well, thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. This is one of my favorite podcasts, Regular Listen, and uh, it's an honor again to be a mad scientist. And uh, I hope to help other people, you know, rise rise to that uh, as well uh, as we, you know, enter into uh, our post-COVID unlocked lives. You guys may not know it, but you know, when when we get introduced at events, and and this is like everything from you know just a general public event to an event with a bunch of four-star generals. The, the mad scientist title is the one that they always choose to pull out of all the different things and stuff that we've done. That's the one that they pull out. And I'd say about half the time, there'll be this pause by the you know introducer who might be like some two-star journalist. Like, That's really cool. So uh, we're just so great. It's not just, you know, we get ideas um, from the series and we love to listen to the podcast. It's also just, it's one of the biggest uh, honors. Um, it's just so cool. It gives us a, a whole different kind of street cred than we ever imagined. Well, we thank you guys for that. And uh, we'll, we'll extend that out to anybody who might want to work with us. Uh, the possibility of getting that mad scientist title out there. Thanks again, gentlemen. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Peter W. Singer and August Cole for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.